Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio. We are in is brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Um, for weeks on end, I was thinking about the end of the show, end of the year show. This is our last hour of, on our last day of the year. And the guest I wanted to have on, um, I thought about this from the very um, last time he was on, someone who sees the culture so broadly and so widely and the kinds of things we talk about here a lot or try to with a measure of intelligence that is only improved by his brain, his wisdom, and his family. Um, if anything good, I'd like to say, happens in the Valley, usually you can find someone with the last name of Twist being involved or behind it. So it is a delight to welcome back to the studio one of those Twists, Eric Twist. He is the uh, founder and head of Arca- uh, Arcadia Education, ArcadiaED.com. Eric, um, welcome back. Remind the audience a little bit about your biography just before we delve into all the fun stuff and you a little bit get, about yourself. You couldn't get the other two, huh? You're scraping the bottom of the, the, bottom of the twist barrel here, Stop Seth. It. It's, Stop uh, it. Stop it. Um, well, uh, uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. Um, you know, before starting Arcadia Ed, uh, and we've, we've had the chance to talk about this for, for uh, oh, well, a couple times now, but I had the pleasure of uh, getting to uh, uh, work at uh, Great Hearts Academies for about 15 years, just some of the best people in the world, and uh, got to be alongside the team that uh, that, that really built and scaled uh, that uh, uh, charter network. And, um, and now we're helping schools across the country, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. When focusing on helping build schools, because this, as I was mentioning, this was, has been the theme of my week, uh, youth problems, youth adolescent, teen, young adult problems. Um, of all kinds, social, emotional, academic, you name it. And my thesis, it's not novel or new to me, but it's just the one I keep hammering home is we wouldn't have youth issues. We wouldn't have youth problems if we didn't have adult issues and adult problems. So the theme in constructing schools, which is where students, where children will spend great amounts of their day throughout the year, what is the essence of a good one? What's the essence of a healthy one? I I, I used to do federal, a lot of federal education policy and DC. And, you know, I learned that when I could walk into a school and it was perhaps people I trained with, but I could tell when a school was good by walking in. I'm sure you can too, but it's more than just the air. Yeah, but there's well, maybe it is yeah. about creating the air. There's yeah. Something in the yeah. air yeah. though. I mean, yeah. it, it is true. The, yeah. the, the, the real professionals in the field, I mean, they, they, you walk into a school that you'll say you can kind of smell, mm-hmm. right. Whether mm-hmm. or not it's a, it's a good, maybe that has something to do with just the, um, I don't know that feeling that you get and whether there's joy. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can see it on the countenances of the people there. You know, I, I always think about John Senior, uh, who led the integrated studies program at the University of Kansas. This is back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I might have some of the decades wrong there. But, you know, he, he said uh, that the essence of a school is a faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the whole quote, I think, is the essence of a school is a faculty of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's that's something that uh, uh, you can sense when you're in a school. You know, do do the uh, do the faculty share something common that they love that they care about, um, and uh, and are they are they pursuing common ends together that are coherent and that are ordered? Ultimately, you would hope uh, to the good of the child. And I I do actually think that's something that you can sense when you walk through the halls when you get into the classroom. Now. 
There's a bunch of other things that go along with that, right? You've got to have academic rigor. You've got to have moral formation. Um, I think uh, a good athletic program is really important. There are a lot of things that um, that I think go into a, a really good school. But you can have the best facilities, the best curricula, the best pedagogical method. Um, you can have uh, uh, you know uh, all the right tech and those things. But if you put it in the hands of the wrong adults, you will produce scoundrels. That's what I want to focus on. Right. It, so, so to your earlier point, I, the, the adults matter more than I think we adults in the room like to admit. Right. I think that's right. I think adults don't realize how much they teach, not just by what they preach in a classroom or convey in a classroom, but how they act. Well, well teaching is not just knowledge transfer. Aristotle, right? It's, yeah. It's not simply about I have data mm-hmm. that I need to you know, download into your brains and then you'll regurgitate that right. you know, down the road. It's so much – I mean so much of the, the best teaching that happens are in those stolen moments, right? They're, they're well beyond in terms of shaping the future of that young mind, that young heart. Uh, there, it's so much f- far beyond just the content – uh, that the teacher understands and is passing on. It's the, it's the getting down on one knee. It's the hand on the shoulder. It's when a kid gets in trouble pulling them aside and uh, articulating not even in words sometimes but in actions the deep love uh, that the adult has for the child. And, and that speaks something of their dignity. Uh, but it is absolutely, absolutely the case that if teachers don't first love their students, I don't mean that in some warm, cheesy, fuzzy way. I mean in, in, the, in the way that they treat them consistently over time. Uh, if they don't do that well, they can never actually give the content. They can never, you know, the data that they have in the mind, they can actually never transfer. It. This goes to a part of education that got more attention over the last few years, which is homeschooling, if I can for a moment, because um, one of the magic things that happens in homeschooling, um, it seems to me, is that you have that very teacher built right in. You have the parent who's the teacher. Dismissed often by the professionals as an amateur, a word that I don't know how it became a pejorative because you are trained to know how that word works itself out. (laughs) But it means someone who does something by love. Amore is the same root, right? It's not someone who does it for pay but for love. You can't pay a parent enough to teach their children as much as they would like to, right? It's such a key ingredient, and and the parent always loves the child more than the professional teacher. And that is absolutely something that we've lost, right, in the larger yeah. kind of education conversation. Right now we have a lot of – well, what we have, which fascinates me, uh, and may, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We, we have these teachers now that believe that somehow they do love their students more than mom and dad yeah. do, that actually mom and dad are getting in the way of the pure love that the professional educator is there to provide to the to the student. And actually, it's a great violence against the rights of the, the, the mothers and fathers across this country. I think we have, by the way, the pandemic sort of woke up everybody to this. And I think there are more and more moms and dads who have considered homeschooling because they got to look behind the curtain and went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There, there's more than just knowledge transfer going on here. There's an agenda yeah. uh, that is being pushed on my children. It's actually being done behind my back. And uh, I think that frightens more, more on both sides of the spectrum. 
and that that, fr- that frightens mom. Yeah, on that, great. We're we're working our way into this, but on that, it goes back to something you said a few moments ago, Eric, to us too, which is it, it doesn't have to do with how nice the school may look or how much tuition it. You know, we were reading about what some of these schools on the East Coast were doing. Some of these high schools that cost I don't know forty thousand dollars a year in the public, and the buildings are beautiful, and uh, you know the surround all the appurtenances are are, are top notch. But what's going on there is crud. What's going on in there is crud. And so it's not just about the inputs and the money, right? Well, Arizona has proved this over the last, what, 25 years, 30 years. I mean, we, my son's in a basketball tournament right now, which you know, and we'll be back at a, a big box factory farm style uh, public school uh, today out in the East Valley. It's massive, Seth. It has all the all the facilities you would want. There's a Olympic sized swimming pool. There's all the sports facilities. There's all the media rooms. I mean, all the bells and whistles. I can promise you that what's happening at that school is nothing like the smaller, you know, mom and pop charter school down the street, the private school, or the homeschool co op right that's right next door. Because going back to what you said, you you. You know, you cannot reduce education to just knowledge transfer. You cannot reduce it to some sort of, uh, uh, you know, factory efficiency, right? It's got to be the place where you, you are not just a number as a student. And I would say that's true for the teachers as well. And a lot of these um, big box schools, the teachers are, are, are numbers, right? Everything is about about efficiency, and it and it and it dehumanizes, right? Not only the individual, but the larger culture itself. Uh, and when you do that. Um, you actually set kids up to to have a, in a sense, even a bad taste in their mouth about academic pursuits, right? Because uh, they're not done for for their own sake, right? You you don't create true amateurs in that sense. They don't do things because they love them, mm-hmm. because they're beautiful, because they're good in and of themselves. You do them simply because the system forces you to do it. Yeah, that that word. I want to focus on this word. We're heading into a commercial break, and when we come back, I want to focus on the word you just used about dehumanizing and 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 kind of the trajectory of education from the fifties forward to today, um, in the view of what teaching means, what childhood means. The theme I've been working on so much lately is that we are yanking children out of childhood. We adults are foisting on our children too many adult themes too quickly. I think Neil Postman had the phrase of yanking children out of their necessary gardens of Eden. Mm. And at, 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 in doing so, finding a lot of arrested development, finding a lot of social and emotional problems, both in our youth and in our adults. Can we do that when we come back? Public school system does that at scale. Let's talk about it. At scale. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Eric Twist is my guest. He of Arcadia Education, ArcadiaED.com, and really so many other things. Um, Eric, um, Let's talk about that word you used, dehumanizing, humanizing and dehumanizing children. One of the things we learned during COVID about what was going on in our schools. But one of the things that seems to me we see in these debates about not just curricula, but the kind of curricula, the debates over Florida was a springboard for this or was a touchstone of this. The, the sexual, sexual themes brought into the classroom at too early or too young of an age. Um, the racialization of children, um, also through books and pedagogy, I suppose. These are things that seem to me 
have erased the notion of childhood. It seems to me there's a war against childhood that's been going on for some time now. I think we've spoken before about a line Hannah Arendt used in the 50s, worried about the notion that progressive education was going to be viewed as as a system whereby adults play out their political games on the schoolyards of their children. And it seems to me we're doing a terrible disservice to children, we adults, by not understanding that childhood is childhood. It's an important time of life that we cannot rush and we cannot implant. And you can get this in the Republic, too, the wrong kinds of thoughts and ideas into the children. Well, how much of it is that we abhor innocence Okay, now? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm seeing this uh, more and more, right? Uh, and, uh, of course, especially from the left, although I think you see it on the right as well. And I, I think we have to look at our own. But, um, you know, there's, uh, there's not a sacredness anymore to that season of life, right, where you're supposed to – I mean, think about even – you know, we just come through the Christmas season and, you know, there's still the debate about whether or not it's moral to, to uh, you know, lie to your children about uh, – the man in the big red suit, you know, calling it a lie. Uh, well, okay. Well, I mean, you're tipping your hat as to where you come down in your use of that verb. Well, you know, is it is it actually a lie? I mean, in the sense right. of right, right, of, right, right. Is it is it vicious? Right. You know, in, right. in some sense, and and um, you know, was it was it Lewis that that said it was uh, it was more dangerous uh, to not believe in in kind of woodland sprites and fairies than it was to believe in them? Um, but you know, we kind of abhor all that. And I don't know how much of that has to do with uh, hyper rationalism and and those things, but uh, but what we what we see today, I think, is uh, a growing section of uh, adult uh, adults um, who are hell bent, absolutely hell bent on destroying the innocence of young children, um, and they're using children as a proxy, right, for their own sort of um, debauchery. Uh, and and it's as though they're looking for justification, right? In that if we can draw this down into the innocence of childhood, uh, in a sense, maybe we make our own lifestyle innocent, right? If it's okay for kids, then it's okay for everybody. Um, and I, I, you know, I think it's deranged, uh, but we're seeing it. To use the word again, I think we're seeing it at scale. Well, let's stay on this notion of the man in the big red suit for a second, and whether it's okay or not. Because it seems to me healthy societies have generally understood the importance of fairy tales, the importance of moral lessons that we all know weren't true. Uh, an earlier generation would have known the Aesop fables. They would have – fables, fables, not true stories. Uh, they would have known Mother Goose. Um, Plato gets into this into the Repub- in the Republic, as you well know, the kinds of stories we tell our children that are not true, and we all know they're not true, but they're done for a reason, aren't they? They are told to communicate something. They're not told for no reason. They're not told just for entertainment purposes. It is about training a mind, training a soul, training a morality that we can all live with one another as we grow old and understand these lessons, whether it's the goose that laid the golden egg, any number of them, right? Well, they're, they're and told we know to, they're not true. But, but, they but are at the same time, they're, they're told to communicate truth. Right, right. Uh, and so there's, there's a higher truth that's more important, right, than, than uh, being uh, literal, mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and and what what you actually have, uh, I think, uh, today is uh, we've lost a sense of uh, the, the importance of fairy tales. We've lost a sense of, of truth telling through art at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, all our art does now is lie to us. Mm-hmm. 
Right. It's the very opposite of uh, of what uh, Hans Christian Andersen was doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of what the great storytellers uh, of the past were doing. And so, um, yeah, no, I, I, you know, again, Seth, I think that that what we have right now are uh, a small minority of very powerful and amplified adults, especially through through social media um, that are using children today as a proxy uh, for elevating and legitimizing uh, their debauchery. Um, and, you know, uh, whether or not it will last <laughs> is, is uh, you know, for, for how long it will last. You know, I'm reminded here, uh, 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 Douglas Murray has this anecdote, you know, when he brought up to his professor that, you know, no, nothing that, no, no, um, uh, uh, you know, something that can't go on forever won't. And his professor, you know, replied to him, actually, in, in, in my uh, – in my life, I've I've come to learn, Douglas, uh, that things that can't go on forever usually do. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> and, right, right. And so, you know, how for for how long will society continue to tolerate the madness that's being perpetuated against our children? And is that a line too far? Well, it is a line too far, I think, and we're seeing it all around us. When you see the kinds of interesting paradoxes, we've built a society that has never had more access to intelligence, more immediate access to information. My gosh, in the palms of our hands, we can access more than the Library of Alexandria ever had, more money. We are wealthier than we have ever been. And yet we are seeing youth violence. We are seeing youth self-harm. We are seeing increases of youth mental health issues. Uh, I was quoting from a psychiatric hospital in San Diego yesterday. They said they used to get about 30 youth uh, admissions a day in the ER for mental health uh, services. They're uh, 30 a month. They're now getting 30 a day. Uh, what the he- what the heck is going on here? Uh, what are we, you know? We had this focus, this weird, weirdly named, maybe well named and weirdly practiced focus on SEL, social and emotional learning. Seems we have been hell bent on ruining ruining the social and emotional value and learning of our children in what we're forcing them to kind of deal with that is leading to these kinds well, of problems. Well, this isn't a new phenomenon. Okay. I mean, don't, don't you think we've seen this? I would say even starting in the 1940s, okay. in the 50s, um, we, we have this just uh, desire in this country especially uh, to satiate everything okay. right that we feel we have a desire to be protected, we have a desire uh, to ensure that we feel no pain, um, and we go to uh, ridiculous bounds right to to try to satisfy uh, that and I think what we're what we 're seeing today is uh, uh, the the logical culmination of this particular perspective, which is Everybody is a victim of something. In fact, if you're not a victim of something, you're actually not – you don't have a place in society anymore. Yeah. And so you have to pick. You're known by uh, your victim. So you were right. known by your victim status. And, and so you better pick it and pick it fast and you better indulge it uh, as much as possible. Now think about the psychological implications of that view of the world and that view of yourself I want to do uh, that. in society. I, I want to pick up on that with you. This is, this is I think, the key uh, about confusing children and the psychological effects of that. Eric Twist is my guest from Arcadia Education. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Eric Twist is my guest on this uh, final ultimate hour of the year, um, talking about the thing that I think is the most important, uh, which is uh, the training, the conditioning, the use and the abuse of our youth, our children. Eric, uh, we were talking about the shift that has taken place over the past uh, maybe generation and a half, maybe maybe two generations, 
of the way we view children and education. And it seems to me we've politicized a lot more than we ever used to. It seems to me we are confusing children a lot more than we ever used to think was okay. And now I'm talking about some of this issue with the, 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 the gender wars that are taking place and the, and the psychiatric and the sociological uh, inputs that are, that are, and pressures that are put on children uh, with regard to sex and gender roles, things that I don't think they're built for at that age to be dealing with. And let me just take a minute to unfold this. It seems to me from the 60s through the 70s through the 80s, there was this massive cultural effort to treat children as children and have them feel good about who they were, whether it was in the 1960s with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or even Sesame Street or the Children's Defense Fund or in the 70s, the free-to-be-you-and-me effort of Ms. Magazine, where girls were proud to be girls and boys were proud to be boys, and there were things boys could do and things girls could do. They were equally good, but they weren't the same. This was the massive effort of understanding that. And even Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan was an education expert. That was, it seemed to me, the focus. And that is all out the window these days. It seems to me that focus on children and that focus on them feeling comfortable with who they are rather than as a victim or rather as having a problem or perhaps surrendering the adult view and letting the child be in charge or be able to make permanent life-altering decisions at the young age of 10. A lot of confusion being thrust on them. Well, and let's go back to what we were saying earlier about the adults in the room. Yep. I mean – for generations, the encroachment, you know, Jordan Peterson's great on this, right? You don't get these things in one fail swoop. It's just a little bit moving of that that line, right? A little bit of a time. Mm-hmm. And every time that was done, an adult could have looked at it and said no and didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's both at the most local level and at the national level. We didn't have people that were that had the backbone, right, to look at the madness and call it what it is. And hopefully we're getting to the place now. I actually think you see it more more, more than ever. You you certainly see it. I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that may end up saving this country is comedy. Uh, you know, you, you've got the jester uh, uh, looking at the emperor and saying there are no clothes, and and we need you know the the comedian plays a very important role. The you know Joe Rogan probably one of the most important. You know that he is a comedian. He's also one of the best podcasters right on on the planet. Um, and but all of them are sort of looking at at the culture right now and saying, yeah, at some point we've got to we've got to call this out for what it is. We need more of that in this country. We don't need it just from. Uh, uh, you know, people like you, Seth, that 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 obviously have a, a, a wide audience and 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 are being listened to. But we need moms and dads to be doing that in the home to say no. You know, going. It, it sounds so old fashioned, but literally saying no, you're not leaving the house like that. You know, we need to get back to a place of understanding that saying no can sometimes to a child be the greatest act of love. That's right. And 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 treating the child as a child and not a best friend. You see that problem a lot yeah. too. Yeah. And, you know, let me go back to saying no also isn't just about looking at the children and saying no. It's about looking at these other adults and yeah. say the, 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 this is a bridge too far. We're, you know, we are not going to accept these things anymore. We're going to call them out. I think you see that happening in ways that we didn't 10 years ago, by the way. So, I you do know, think it's, it's interesting comedians. That's an interesting point. Um, mutual teacher of ours, uh, Hadley Arcus, makes the point that so much truth can be found in comedy. 
uh, because every great comedian is basing his joke, his jape, the, the punchline, in something that we all know deep down to be true. You think about those comedians that are the most prominent right now. Um, Joe Rogan, certainly one of them. Adam Carolla, certainly one of the people with bo- podcasts. Richie, Richie, Richie Gervais. Gervais yeah. uh, and um, the uh, young guys coming up. Jeff Dye. Jeff Dye is. Uh, and they're all focusing yeah. on this stuff, yes. aren't they? This is what they're focusing on, yes. isn't it? And, and their audience is growing because of yes. it. You do not see left of center comedians holding That's really right. a candle to any of these That's guys. That's right. Uh, and that's a fa- that's a fascinating truth. In fact, you've seen left of center comedians moving. Move. Bill way. Maher. Bill Maher comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Bill Burr comes yeah. to mind. Eric Twist and I'll be right back. This is the sound of me losing total control of the show. <laughs> it's everything I can muster to get young David to play the right music. It's everything I can do to get that to happen without him. And his little descents and his little passive aggressive changes to that. Now I have guests coming in. I have Mr. (laughs) Twist here telling David what he wants. I did not authorize any of it. It's a palace revolt. It seems like it. Welcome back. Eric Twist is my guest. I wanted to do a couple. uh, Okay, let me do it this way. Can I read you a quote? Mm. Um, He's controversial. I think the work still stands. He was a very well-known uh, child psychiatrist in psychologist in the 60s and 70s, um, and he wrote I, what I still think is the definitive book on analyzing children's young stories. His name was Bruno Bettelheim. He, he wrote this, An understanding of the meaning of life is not suddenly acquired at the age of chronological maturity or at any particular age. This achievement is the result of a long development. Wisdom is built upon step by step step by small step. Unfortunately, too many parents want their children's minds to function as their own do, as if a child's understanding of himself and the world did not have to develop as slowly as his body does. The child must therefore be helped to bring order into the turmoil of his feelings. He needs a moral education that subtly, by implication, conveys to him the advantages of moral behavior through that which seems tangibly right and therefore has meaning for him." Close quote. It's a lot in there. I particularly like the idea of the mind and the morals growing as slowly as the body and how parents miss that. I wanted to read that to you and just get you to open up however that inspired well, you. Well, it, it immediately takes me back to, again, where we started. You know, if, if, if teaching, which is, uh, again, to, right, to, to draw out uh, the very best uh, that a student can become um, – you know, it, teaching is fundamentally an act of love, right, first and foremost. And what do we know about love? Uh, St. Paul says the very first thing we know about is that it's patient. Mm. Right? It's patient. Nice. And, and any parent, any good parent knows that with your children you have to take the long view. You have to you have to do with them exactly what you would want done with you, which is to give them grace, to be kind, right? To don't keep a record of wrongs, right? Uh, to always hope, to always persevere, to always trust, right? Because love never fails, and and so teaching's got to take that as its north star, uh, and that's true for the the professional educator as it is for the mom that's that's doing the homeschooling co op. Uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that it takes a long time to to grow in virtue and most of us need a lifetime yeah and maybe part of the problem is that too many adults think of teaching in the context of love as loving the wrong things 
they're perhaps loving the wrong things. Maybe they're loving the political more than the moral, or maybe they're loving the um, the policy or the use of children for politics and policy more than um, other important things like the natural and important growth of a children. I was thinking, you know, youth movements are traditionally part of autocracies and tyrannical movements. There's a Maoist youth movement. There were, you know, obviously the Soviet, Soviet communist youth movements, Marxist youth movements, obviously a Nazi youth movement. This comes with a pretty awful pedigree using children for political purposes rather than using children for what they really are, loving the wrong thing. Well, this is where it it really goes ugly is that um, if you are – if you think the the proper ends of man uh, is activism, right, or – or to become simply just a political animal, right? If Which is my thesis that right. too many schools and teachers are doing. Yeah. By the way, and 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 again, this is this is why you know in the world that I exist, mainly in the classical school movement, you know, it is. Uh, uh, I mean, it has its margins like any movement, but but the uh, the broad center of the classical mo- school movement has you know has a lot of principles. But one of them is is that uh, education should be must be apolitical. Mm-hmm. That it's a sanctuary away from the noise of the now. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we have at. Let's say it again. And at people scale. will think and, that that's wrong. Well, absolutely. Right? That's that's the problem. Well, be, again, it goes back right. to what you said. If right. you love the wrong things, right. um, then what you will do with all good intentions is you will push those falsehoods onto children, right? Because you'll believe you'll you're morally obligated to do that. So we you know, we always used to say at Great Arts that uh, education is first anthropology. If you don't think deeply about the human person, if you don't care about what you think human flourishing means, right, then you won't be able to backwards design the right type of education that moves you to that. Now, every educator has an anthropology, right? Some have just appropriated it from the culture. Others have thought really meaningfully about it. I would say on the left right now, on the hard progressive left, they thought about it very meaningfully. And they're pushing an education that is ordered to some end, Right. Of man. And for them, like like in 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 most of these movements that you're talking about, they're utterly political. Yeah, That's they're, all that, they their are. telos is the state man it's, is the Marxist man. Right. Your telos the is the guy who knows Aristotle and can live in this world. Well, yeah. And 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 ultimately thinks much smaller. Yeah. Right. Thinks about their obligation to the local changing themselves right? more than people. society. Yeah, because this is another truth about love. Yeah. You cannot love an abstraction. So people that say, oh, I love humanity. Well, no, you don't. You cannot love humanity. You can love a spouse. You can love a neighbor who's keeping their music up too loud. You can, you know, love a person, but you have to know them, right? And we used to, you know, this again. Let's take it back to to, to education. Uh, this this has a pedagogical truth to it that there's no such thing as teaching a classroom. Mm-hmm. You can only teach an individual because if it's an act of love, you have to know the other. You have to know your subject. You have to know them uh, uh, deeply, mm-hmm. um, and and you have to respond to them as them. And, and so you can't just uh, uh, pick for efficiencies and for some, you know, abstract end like political freedom or, 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 or you know, licentiousness or, or whatever it might be, you know, the, the, the sort of aggrandizement of the isolated individual. Uh, that's what's happening, again, at scale across so many public schools in this, in this country. And it's leaving people hopeless and helpless and sad. And this is why we see them uh, in emergency rooms and other places begging for someone to get them out of their misery. 
You had refer- beautifully stated. You had referenced C.S. Lewis earlier, and there was a quote that kept coming into my mind as you were talking about it. And uh, we'll go to the break on this and conclude with some thoughts in a moment. But one of the problems in society, he said in one of his great speeches, was a situation, was a society which loves God less than man, which loves God less than man. And that, it does seem to me, is the revolutionary movement, right? I'm going to change mankind, but I don't have my own moral structure in order just yet, right? Eric Twist is my guest. He and I will come back with a concluding thought for the new year. Well, thank you, um, Eric Twist, for coming in um, for this final hour of our show. And uh, till the new year, look forward to doing a lot with you next year. I think the things you're focused on and working on are the most important things uh, in society here. And I um, wanted you on for that very reason. That quote I went out with from C.S. Lewis, when I first read it, problem is loving God less than man. I had to read about 10, 12 times to quite under, to kind of understand what he was getting at there, because it's not the natural flow of that or construction of language, that the problem is loving God less than man. And if people want to replace something other than God, like a morality or a moral sense or a moral purpose with God, that's fine too. But it's this point of everyone wants to change the world, no one wants to change himself. Hmm. And I think good education is about the latter, isn't it? It's about changing yourself before changing the world. Yeah, and and, and order boy, one more. Do, Talk about that if you. Yeah, want. Well, I mean, Augustine's so smart on this, right? <laughs> if I could put it that way, I mean, yeah, you have to have your loves in the right order, and um, and uh, listen, God has to be at the top. That's just it's irrefutable, um, and and I think that uh, we need um, more and more teachers in this country to to as an act of love look at their students and to say. Um, that particular perspective that you have or that action that you continue to take or or whatever it is in you uh, that is somewhat off, somewhat disordered, will not lead to your happiness. And I love you enough to call it out, right? I love you enough to point it out and to say that there's a better way. Uh, and we need to do that more with one another. That's what true friends do. Aristotle was brilliant on that, right? Your best friend is the one that can person, look at you, right, right, and say, you're better than this. Yep. Right. And I love you so much that I'm willing to have conflict right with you for your future self. Well, there's a lot there people can take resolutions out and uh, apply to in the next year. So to audience, happy, healthy, safe New Year. David, Mr. Bill, Teresa, the Twist family, Eric, um, God bless you all. And until 2024, class is dismissed. Well, that's our show for tonight. I want to thank all my wonderful guests for dropping by. I especially want to thank you, Frank. Don't mention it, Marvin. And I also want to thank all you out there for watching. Please remember the moral of tonight's show. Put your troubles away till tomorrow. If you're lucky, someone will break into your house tonight and steal them. (laughs) 